Good morning, everybody. All right, let's open up our Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 2. Father, we're grateful. We know, Lord, we don't close our eyes to the, um, to the pain, to the turmoil, to the difficulty in this world. It's a fallen world we live in, Lord, and we see the effects of it all around us. We want to be bold enough to believe, Lord Jesus, that you are greater than it all. That you can speak, you can move, you can do great things in our midst, despite it all. So do it, Lord Jesus. And move now in us and through us by your word. Speak to us, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I just told you this morning to open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 2, and that's good, and I'm glad that you have. But I may also tell you, if you want to, you can also find your way and just put a finger at two other places in the New Testament, Acts chapter 7 and Hebrews chapter 11, because we're going to be referring to those two places a little bit later on. Because this morning, as we take a look at this segment in the life of Moses, as it's recounted to us in the book of Exodus, we're going to find that some of the most illuminating things about the life of Moses in this section are not even found in Exodus chapter 2, but they're found in Acts chapter 7 and in Hebrews chapter 11 as it gives us some insight as to what was happening back here in Exodus chapter 2. So let's begin right now, Exodus chapter 2, verse 1. And a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi, So the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. At the end of Exodus chapter 1, we saw the children of Israel in Egypt as slaves under brutal taskmasters among the Egyptians. And the Egyptians, especially Pharaoh, the king of the Egyptians, were so concerned at the rising population of Israelites in their midst that he commanded first that they be put under slavery to try to keep the birth rate down. That didn't work. Then he commanded that the Jewish midwives murder all of the boy babies that were born. That didn't work because the Hebrew midwives said, no, thank you. We're not going to do that. Then he made a command that every Jewish baby, male baby, I should say, boy baby, should be cast into the Nile River and killed as a form of infanticide. You could even call it just abortion after the fact because he intended to go straight from out of the womb into the river unto their death. And this was the command that he made in an effort to keep the population of the Jewish people down in the midst of Israel. Well, now we read here in verses 1 and 2 of Exodus chapter 2 that unto a husband and wife, we're not told their names here, but in Exodus chapter 2, we're told that their names are Amram and Jochebed. To Amram and Jochebed were born this beautiful little boy. And when the mother saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him Three months. And I just want you to think just for a moment the kind of world that this little boy Moses was born into. 
He was born into a very unfriendly world, uh, to a powerful nation. The Egyptian empire had stood for hundreds of years by this time. But he was born from a foreign oppressed race in a time when all babies such as himself were under a death sentence. They were commanded to be cast into the river Nile. Nevertheless, Moses had something very special, very precious in his life. Even as a little baby, he was born unto believing parents. He was born unto parents who were full of faith in the living God. Ladies and gentlemen, if I could say, that's one of the very best gifts you could ever give to your children. Every one of us, we think about how we can provide something good for our children. We want to provide for them good lives. We want to provide it for them in their home environment, in their activities, in their future, in their education, in their socialization, on and on. But ladies and gentlemen, one of the best things you can ever do for your children is for you to be a husband or a wife or a father or a mother of faith. That's exactly the benefit that came to Moses, as he was born in the world. I want you to notice this. In verse 2, it says very specifically that the mother hid Moses for three months. This is in direct disobedience to the command of what might have been the most mighty man on the face of the earth at this time. I don't know how the Egyptian empire compared to other empires at that time, but if it was not the mightiest, it was one of the mightiest. There was a man of great power, of great prestige. He commanded, throw that baby into the water. And she said, no, I'm going to hide him in my home for three months. The parents of Moses did this not only out of natural parental instinct, but they also did it because they were filled with faith. And this is our first section from another passage. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, describes the faith of Moses' parents. Here's what it says. It says, by faith, Moses, when he was born was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. Doesn't that illuminate something? That it wasn't only parental instinct that said, no, we don't want our baby boy to die. But instead, it was faith. It was a bold act of faith. In faith, we're going to do what God commands and ignore the command of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So they hid him three months. What are you going to do? You can't hide a baby forever. Three months, the cries start getting louder. The baby starts becoming more active. What are you going to do? You can't hide that baby forever. So verse 3 tells us what they decided to do. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, and put the child in it and laid it in the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she had opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Did you see what it said right there in verse 3? It said that there, the mother of Moses took a basket like a little ark. She covered it with pitch, with an asphalt type of material to make it nice and waterproof and secure to be put in the the river. And she set that baby in the river, which, by the way, you could say literally fulfilled Pharaoh's command. Pharaoh commanded that all those boy children be cast into the river. She said, okay, Pharaoh, I'm more than happy to do it, but here it is just on a little boat. 
So she puts the baby in the little boat made of a basket and sends it down the river. And can you imagine what faith in God it took for her to do that? You see, she knew that if she kept the child, he would be murdered for certain. That some Egyptian official, some informant among the Hebrews, that that child had a death sentence on his head. And the only recourse she had was to do something radical with that child and to trust him to God in a special way. So she went down to the river. She put him in the specially made boat and she put him off trusting him to the currents, trusting him to the guidance of God, trusting him to whatever God would wish for that child. And she sent him along the way. Now, friends, I do just want to highlight one point out of this is very important. Parenting takes a lot of faith, doesn't it? It genuinely does. Faith in the living God. And sometimes God allows significant trials, significant testings to come into your life or to my life or whoever's life through parenting. But it drives us again and again to trust in the living God. That's exactly what Moses' mother did here. The baby uh, was sent off drifting down that. Oh, no, I hope he doesn't get eaten by a crocodile. Oh, no, I hope he doesn't drift off into some place where he's just left to exposure and to an uncertain fate. But no, it was if God was guiding that little boat all along the way. Moses' mother had to do something very difficult, had to let go of her own control. There was no little radio-controlled apparatus on that boat steering it right to where she wanted it to be. But she had to trust God and let it go exactly where God would guide that boat to be it and ended up to be right there at Pharaoh's daughter. You saw it right there where it says in verse 6 that she saw the baby. And then it says, I think this is wonderful, the baby wept so she had compassion on him. In God's guidance, Pharaoh's daughter found the baby Moses. She was conditioned by her culture and even by her upbringing to reject the Hebrews. But the cry of the baby Moses melted her heart. I think it's so wonderful that not only did God guide that little boat, but right to a prepared heart. A heart that was prepared to receive the child. And God had beautifully planned something for the deliverance of Moses because Moses was delivered, was he not? He was delivered from the crocodiles. He was delivered from the river. He was delivered from a certain death if he were to remain in the home of Amrad and Jochebed. But not only that, but God skillfully guided the parents of Moses, the currents of the Nile, and the heart of Pharaoh's daughter to receive little boy Moses into their home and to be raised among the Egyptians. We'll look at it here starting now at verse 7. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, and again, this is Moses' sister, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said, we're go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I'll give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Well, using the very clever initiative of Moses' family and the need of Pharaoh's daughter, God arranged a way for Moses' mother to continue to have that. She could still hold baby Moses in her arms. She could still suckle that baby at her breast. She could just receive that, that motherly love and affection and put it upon that child. And as the child grew older, he, she could tell him who he really was who his identity genuinely was. And she got paid for it all along the way. Isn't that great that God would work it out that way? 
I'd say, and there was no doubt during these early years that Moses learned something of the God of his fathers. And he realized that the Israelites, the Hebrews, were his fellow countrymen. But make no mistake about it. Look at it now at verse 10. And the child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. So she called his name Moses saying, because I drew him out of the water. Did you see that in verse 10? He became her son. Not his birth mother, but rather Pharaoh's daughter. He became the son of Pharaoh's daughter, the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. Moses became part of the royal family. And the ancient Jewish historian tells us that that Moses was heir to the throne of Egypt. And that while he was a young man, he led the armies of Egypt in victorious battle against the Ethiopians. That he was an up and comer, that he was a successful man, that he was a powerful man. He, He wasn't just a dilettante in the courts of Pharaoh, no. He was an active, successful man who was on a career track to take the very throne of Egypt himself. And certainly, he was raised with both the science and the learning of Egypt. This is what Acts chapter 7, verse 22 says. It says that Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. At that time, Egypt was one of the most academic and scientific societies among all ancient cultures. And it's reasonable reasonable to believe that Moses was instructed in geography, in history, in grammar, in writing, in literature, in philosophy, in music. And he was also skilled, apparently, according to the historian Josephus, in the arts of war as well, being a victorious general. This was an outstanding young man who grew up in the palaces of Egypt. And since he was one of the royal family, you can expect that anywhere that Moses went, that that, that there were heralds shouting out, bow the knee before this prince of Egypt. Give due respect to this man. If he went anywhere on the Nile, it was in a magnificent ship with musical and company. He lived the royal life just like you imagine it from the movies. There were always people... Palm, you know, fronds over his head, fanning him off. There was people with grapes nearby. Would you like some grapes, Prince of Egypt? That whole scene all around him all the time. But nevertheless, he had a Hebrew mother who was an influence on his life. And so he had something, some knowledge of the Hebrew heritage that he came from. Well, everything changes in a radical way. Verse 11. Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. Can we make the transition here? No longer are we talking about baby Moses in a little basket. No longer are we talking about a little boy Moses being raised in the palaces of Egypt. Now we're talking about Moses as an older man. As a matter of fact, the book of Acts gives us reason to believe that Moses was about 40 years old when this happened. He's not an old man, but he's not a young man anymore. He's getting up there a little bit, but he's a man who's had success. He's a man who has his eye on the throne of Egypt. But when Moses was grown, what happens? He went out to his brethren and it says that he looked at their burdens. Now, that's a very interesting phrase in the original language. It means this. It means to see with emotion. 
In other words, when he looked at their burdens, it wasn't just a clinical, well, look, there's a, a, a Hebrew man who's functioning as a slave. Well, boy, that's pretty heavy that he's carrying. Isn't that interesting? It wasn't something like that. He looked upon the burdened Israelites and he saw it with emotion. There was something that connected in the heart of Moses, a sympathy, a giving. And a matter of fact, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 through 26, it tells us some of what happened in the heart and the mind of Moses as he looked at their burdens. It says that by faith, Moses deliberately decided to identify with the people of Israel rather than with the Egyptians and all their prestige and all the opportunity. And I just want you to have this set squarely in your mind. There's Moses with everything in front of him in Egypt. Literally, it seems at least according to Josephus, that the throne of Egypt was in his grasp, that that was his career track. He sees it right on in front of him. And over there he sees his afflicted brethren. And he looks upon them, but he looks upon their burdens with a heart full of compassion. And he's got a choice to make. He has to ask himself a critical question. Who am I? Am I the man who will find all his fulfillment in life along this career track and fulfilling this destiny as taking the throne of Egypt? Or am I a man who identifies with God and his burdened people? Look at what Hebrews 11 says, starting at verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater than the treasures, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Isn't that radical? Did you catch what it said in verse 24 in that little section in Hebrews 11? That he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. I find it interesting that Moses had everything in his life right in front of there in that identity. You are the son of Pharaoh's daughter. You are destined for the throne. And yet he said, no, no, I have a different identity. Actually, that's not who I am. Who I really am is I am among the people of God. I belong to God and am connected to him by covenant in a special way. Ladies and gentlemen, what I really want to point out to this is that Moses knew who he was. And as much allure, as much ease as there was in life as an Egyptian, this is what he knew. He knew, that's not me. His faith in the God that he served helped him to know who he really was. The reason why I think this is so remarkable and so worthy of our focus, at least just for a moment here this morning, is because we live in a culture today where people are so confused about who they are and who they connect with. Who am I connected to? Where do I belong in this world? Who am I? Moses is like a shining light showing us a path here that, first of all, he says, I know who I am. I am connected by covenant to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's who I am. Oh, I know everything around me draws me and says, Moses, you can be the next Pharaoh of Egypt. Moses, you can live this unbelievably luxurious, opulent life. You have all this in front of you. But it it didn't sit right in because that's not who I am. No, I, I am connected by covenant to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And... 
I belong among the people of God. That's exactly what the text from Hebrew tells us. So Moses looked at that and determined knowing who he was. And ladies and gentlemen, doesn't doesn't it speak to you about it? I don't know quite how to phrase this. You know, usually when I'm going to do a message, I think through every phrase or I write it on. I know exactly, but I, I, I don't know exactly how I'm going to say this other than just to put it to you this way. Do you know who you are? Do you have a sense of your own identity? And I don't say that in any sense to make you feel guilty if you don't. If you don't have a sense of who you are and where you belong in this world, I don't condemn you. My heart goes out to you. But I'll tell you, you'll find your identity in Jesus Christ. You'll find your place among the people of God. And that's it, ladies and gentlemen. All I can say is that, I I don't know if this sounds strange for you to hear from me, but that works for me. I, I don't know exactly how, I don't know exactly when, if you want to say the penny dropped in my heart and my mind. All I can say is I've lived decades and decades with that confident knowledge that I belong to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That Jesus Christ is my Savior. And as many of the other connections that I have in this world that I love and that I value. I love and I value that I'm a husband, that I'm a father, that I'm a citizen in a wonderful nation. On and I love and value all those connections. But at the bottom of it all, I belong to Jesus Christ. That settles this thirst, this mystery of who am I and what am I put here on this earth for? And then who am I connected to? I'm connected to the people of God and I'm grateful that I'm connected to a wonderful wife and a beautiful family and a wonderful extended family. And I have all of that and I value it and I treasure it. But I'm so grateful for my connection to the body of Christ that here I am among the people of God where I love and I am loved. And sometimes I'm the strange uncle in that family and sometimes other people are the weird uncle in that family. (laughs) Look, that's just how it is in family, isn't it? But we all love each other. We all get along. And and when we don't get along, we work through it and we realize that here we are, a community of God's people. All all I can say is, is simply this. If you don't have that settled in your life, I pray that you would. And I pray that God would grant you the grace to have it settled soon. That you wouldn't wander through this world. In a place that Moses was not at. Moses had that beautiful blessing of knowing who he was and who he belonged to. And I pray the same thing for you. Because it'll give rest to your soul. It'll give peace to your heart. Well, because he knew who he was. Because he knew who he belonged to. Look at what he did. Verse 11. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. Because his heart was filled with sympathy and brotherhood towards his brethren. He could not stand by while one of his fellow Israelites endured a beating. So what did he do? Verse 12. So he looked this way and that way. And when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Now let me point something out. Moses did this with a guilty conscience. Moses did this knowing it was wrong. How do we know that? Friends, you don't look this way and that way and make sure nobody's looking unless what you're going to do, you know it's wrong. Isn't that correct? He looked this way. He looked that way. Nobody's looking. And then what did he do once he murdered him? He killed him and then he hid him. Those are the actions of a man who who we can understand. We can sympathize with Moses. 
We almost want to say to Moses, Yay, Moses, you're doing something bold. You're doing something to deliver the people of God. But Moses, it was the wrong way in the wrong time. And it says right there that he killed the Egyptian. Now, if you want a good explanation of Moses' actions, you'll have to turn over to Acts chapter 7, starting at verse 23. Let me just say, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. Far and away. But before you read any other commentator on the Bible, see what the Bible has to say about its own passages. And so here, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, speaking before the Sanhedrin of Israel, he speaks to them about Moses and his life in these particular verses. Acts 7, starting at verse 23, where we read. Now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. Now notice this one. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. Wasn't that interesting? That not only was Moses motivated by the rank injustice of what he saw in front of him, that he didn't want to see an Egyptian taskmaster viciously beating one of his fellow Israelites. That wasn't the only thing that motivated. But Stephen tells us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit very clearly that he supposed his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. Moses basically said this, Israel, I am your deliverer. I am the man whom God has raised up to bring deliverance to you at this time, at this place. And when I kill this Egyptian, everybody's going to see that I'm on your side. I know that I was raised in the palaces of Egypt. I know that you wonder about my sympathies towards you. I want to demonstrate that my sympathies are entirely towards you. So I'm going to kill this Egyptian because people will hear about it and people will know that I am on your side. This will demonstrate it. Here's the question you have to ask. Did it turn out as Moses supposed? No. He thought that he would be embraced by the children of Israel for his bold identification with their sufferings. But look at what happened. Verse 13 tells us, And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, Why are you striking your companion? And he said, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and he said, surely this thing is known. See, Moses had every reason to believe that his education, his royal background, his success, and his great sympathy for the people of Israel would give him credibility among them. And he tried to intervene, therefore, in this violent dispute between two Hebrew men. That was his heart. But look, you could say that first Moses was a murderer, and then he was a meddler. Because verse 14 tells us of their reaction. Did you see it? They asked this man, Moses, who made you a prince and a judge over us? You see, Moses seemed to act like a prince giving his royal background. And he acted like a judge and that he determined that one of these men did wrong. By the way, did you notice that in that section that we read? That it says very plainly there, it says, he said to the one who did the wrong. In other words, this wasn't one of those situations, well, they're both wrong. No, you're not both wrong. One of you is wrong and one of you is right. 
And so he's trying to break it up, knowing that one of them did wrong and one of them did right. He judged between them. And he seemed to be the perfect prince and the perfect judge of Israel, but they did not want him. Ladies and gentlemen, I see the same thing in the world today regarding Jesus. I don't know if you've caught on, but this is a remarkable illustration of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Moses could never save Israel from the palaces of Egypt. He had to come away from the palace, down among that slave people, and live and breathe among them if he was ever going to reach them. That's what Jesus did for us. Jesus could never rescue his people as long as he stayed in heaven. But when he came to this earth and added humanity to his deity and walked among us, then he could be our savior. And Jesus identified himself with us. And he came among us as a legitimate prince and as a legitimate judge. But don't people reject Jesus the same way? Do you know what a prince says? If you recognize a man as a prince over you, you recognize that he has the right to rule over you, that you owe him submission. If a man is a judge over you, you recognize that he has the right to tell you what's right and what's wrong and to punish you if you do wrong. And don't people say the same thing to Jesus today? They look at Jesus and they say, who made you a prince and a judge over me? I'm not going to have you rule over me. I'm not going to submit my life to you. I'm not going to let you tell me what's right and what's wrong. But ladies and gentlemen, Jesus Christ is a legitimate prince and judge. And you're only going to find peace in your life and satisfaction in your soul when you come to Jesus in humility and say, Jesus, be my prince. Jesus, be my judge. That's what Israel should have done in that time. But he did not do it. And Moses planned for the deliverance of Israel at that time. But you know what happened? They rejected him. We don't want you to be a prince over us. We don't want you to be a judge over us. I don't know if I really blame Moses. Who would blame him for figuring out this way? I'm the guy. I'm the man with the education. I'm the man with the success. I'm the man with the heart. Who else could deliver Israel like I could? Israel, here I am, your deliverer. And they said, we don't want you to be a prince and a judge over us. And Moses says, "Uh uh-oh, time to get out of town. Surely this thing is known. But do you fault Moses honestly? Do you fault Moses and his plans for how he would be deliverer for Israel? I mean, God's plan was radically different. Here was God's plan. You ready for this? Forty years later, God will lead Moses and his brother Aaron to Pharaoh with a special stick that's going to turn into a snake. And then Moses is going to ask Pharaoh to let Israel go back to Canaan. Pharaoh's going to say no. So through Moses, God's going to bring plagues of blood, frogs, mosquitoes, flies, cattle disease, boils, hail, locusts, and darkness. And finally, God is going to judge stubborn Pharaoh and Egypt with the plague on the firstborn of Egypt. And then Israel's going to escape across the Red Sea. And then the waters of the Red Sea are going to come crashing back upon the Egyptian army. And then the Israelites are going to cross the wilderness and come into Canaan. Would anybody ever plan it out that way? By the way, I hope it didn't spoil the rest of the book of Exodus for anybody. But that's really how it happens. Nobody would plan it that way, but God planned it that way. So this is what Moses does in God's plan. Verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of the matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. 
Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water, and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them, and he watered their flock. When they came to Ruel, their father, he said, How is it that you've come so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. Moses says, I've got to get out of here. He fled from the face of Pharaoh. And can you imagine as he left Egypt, fleeing from the face of Pharaoh, could you imagine how crushed Moses must have been? He thought he had it all figured out. God, I know that you've called me to be Israel's deliverer. God, I know the plan that you had, and now it's all blown up in my face. They don't want me, and now there's going to be a head, a price on my head. I have to leave Egypt. And he believed that every chance that he ever had to fulfill God's purpose for his life was gone, that it was crushed. But no, actually, he was right in the middle of God's will. You see, Moses had no idea of it at the time, or probably not. But the fact of the matter was, he was too big for God to use. He was too successful for God to use. Isn't that strange? We never think of that, do we? We think somebody can be too small for God to use. We often don't think that somebody could be too big for God to use. So what did God do? Well, God enrolled Moses in his own training program. Verse 15, he dwelt in the land of Midian. Now, where is Midian? Well, Midian there is on an area that's across from the Sinai Peninsula on the west and the east sides of the of the Red Sea. We're going to talk a little bit more about this geography later, but I just wanted to plant this in your mind. Moses comes to Midian. He helps out these seven female shepherds, the, the daughter of a great man, a priest of Midian. He stood up and he helped them. He watered their flock. Verse 20. So he said to his daughters, where is he? And why is it that you've left the man? Call him that we may eat bread. And Moses was content to live with the man, and he gave Zipporah, his daughter, to Moses. And she bore him a son and called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. Later, I think there's some gold right there in verse 21 where it says, Moses was content to live with the man. He didn't just endure it. He found contentment there. Don't you think that's saying for something for a man who lived 40 years of his life in the palaces of Egypt? They could go out into the hot, dry, dusty desert among a Bedouin-type people and not only live there, not only survive, but find true contentment. Nevertheless, verse 22 clues us off that there was an ache within Moses' soul. Do you see what the ache was? Verse 22 says that he called the name of his son Gershom. Do you know what Gershom means? It means stranger. And Moses named him that, he says, because I've been a stranger in a foreign land. You see, this is evidence of some loneliness in the heart of Moses. He sees the loneliness. I I, I don't belong among the Egyptians anymore. I'm not among my own Hebrew people anymore. I'm a lonely man in the midst of the Midianites. But none of that defeated God's plan, God's purpose for his life. No, he was in God's school learning now how to be a simple nobody that God would use. Verse 23 Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage and cried out. And their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged them. 
I wonder if Moses forgot about Israel during those long, many years in Midian. He ended up spending 40 years in Midian. But God never forgot about Israel. And it says in verse 24 that God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. He didn't turn his attention to them because they were such good people. God turned his attention to them because of the covenant. And ladies and gentlemen, can I tell you with all my heart, that's how you need to come to God today. I believe that God loves you and that God wants to bless you and that God wants to do good and wonderful things in your life, both for now and eternity. I believe that with all my heart, but I don't believe it for a moment because you're such a wonderful person. It's not because you're so great. It's because God is faithful to his covenant. And the covenant that God has made with his people now through the work of Jesus on the cross, where Jesus died on the cross as a substitute in our place, that he was nailed and took the punishment that we deserved. And so now that every one of us, every undeserving one of us, can find rest and peace and forgiveness and satisfaction there from what Jesus did on the cross, it's because of the covenant that God made. It's not because you're so wonderful. Now, you may be wonderful, but God doesn't even care. He says, no, no, I bring my grace to you because I'm wonderful and in light of my covenant. That's how God brings his deliverance to us. So let me conclude with this. God delivered the life of baby Moses, but not without some pain. Baby Moses had to grow up not in the home of his birth. He had to grow up in the palaces of Egypt, which was fine for Moses, I suppose. But not so easy for his mother. God delivered Moses, but not without some pain. God delivered Moses unto Israel, but not without some pain. They rejected him, did they not? Here's your deliverer, Moses. No, we don't want him. He will not be a prince and a judge over us. And then finally, God delivered Moses to the wilderness for his training. He might have ended up dead From Pharaoh's hand had he stayed in Egypt, but God delivered Moses to the wilderness for his training, but not without some pain. I don't know what you're expecting from God's deliverance in your life. And I suppose there's sometimes when God just out of the blue brings his deliverance in such a way that it's just there's no seeming cost or pain in our individual life. Sometimes it's that way. Ladies and gentlemen, If God is bringing his deliverance into your life right now through some measure of pain, do not despise it. He did it that way with Moses in his birth, with Moses in his coming to Israel, with Moses in his going to the wilderness. God delivers you. But sometimes he delivers you through some measure of trial or difficulty. Do not despise it along the way. And finally, more than anything, don't miss Jesus, your deliverer. Is there anybody here who would actually say to Jesus, I do not want you to be a prince or a judge over me? Don't say that. Instead, bring your heart in repentant faith to God this morning. Say, Jesus, be my deliverer. You are my deliverer. Be a prince and a judge over me. Father, that's my prayer for for your people and for those who are yet to be your people here this morning. I pray, God, that you would speak to their hearts now, that they would put faith in you, that they would trust in you. And Jesus, I just wonder if there's not some here this morning that they're tired of rejecting Jesus. 
They're tired of putting off a commitment to him. Well, Lord, would you not speak to them now by the power and the presence of Jesus? So right now, I'm just going to, in the midst of my prayer, give an invitation for those who would like to receive Jesus Christ. I just want to speak to you and say today is a day where you have the opportunity to just simply pray a prayer and to stop fighting against Jesus and to receive him as a prince and a judge in your life. Today's your opportunity. Now's your time to do it. So I'm going to pray, continue in prayer, and give an invitation in the midst of that. Lord Jesus, won't you call people unto yourself right now? Won't you grant them the faith to surrender? Grant them the faith to come to you and say, Jesus, be a prince, be a judge over me. Do it, Lord. Friends, while heads are bowed and eyes are closed in reverent prayer to God, I simply want to ask if there's people here, you want to make a commitment of faith to Jesus now? You want to look to who he is and what he did for you on the cross? Basically, you want to stop rejecting Jesus and you want to surrender to him today as prince and as judge. If that's you, right now, with a spoken word quietly before God, tell God so. Say, yes, God, I want to repent. I want to believe. I want to turn my life towards Jesus. Now, if you tell God so, you can pray this prayer right along with me. Father in heaven, I come to you because of what Jesus has done. I know I need you. I'm tired of rejecting you. I want to turn my life to you, Jesus. I want to receive you as a prince and as a judge over me. Take my life, Lord, and make it new for you. I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus.